0: in Philippians if you're following along in the Red Bible that's on 1822 from verse 1 Paul and Timothy servants of Christ Jesus to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi together with the overseers and deacons grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ I thank my God every time I remember you In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it out to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you. Since I have you in my heart, and whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me.
1: All right. Thanks, Lindsay. And thanks, Jay. I mean, Jack. <laughs> right. I'll just make sure I've got my setup right here. I listened to a recording of last week. I wasn't here last week. Did, did Paul drop heaps of things while he was preaching? <laughs> he kept, dropping kept dropping his watch. Okay. It was, it's, it was quite an interesting thing to listen to on the recording. All right. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to step into this passage. Keep your Bibles open. Uh, The sermon will be on Philippians chapter one, verses twelve. We read from verse one. We're we're just going to be focusing on verses twelve to eighteen. Let me pray briefly. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you have given us your Word. That you are a present God. We ask today that the fire of your Holy Spirit would be burning within your Word as we hear it. We. Pray that you will deliver what you have promised, that your word would never go out from you and then return void, but it would accomplish what you send it to do. So I pray for everyone who is here today, that they would leave here with a more fervent faith, with a more determined love, and with a more present hope. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our Lord and our Redeemer. Amen. You notice the title of today's sermon is the Gospel advance, and if you look ahead to the following weeks, you might not actually have access to the roster. But if you do, you can see that all of the other sermons in this series also start with the word gospel. I think Johnny's next week perhaps with the gospel desire. I think there might be a gospel defence in there. Uh, there's, there's a number of other titles all starting with the with the word gospel, and if you're listening. Uh, attentively to, to Lindsay before, you would have noticed the word gospel comes up a lot of times, particularly in chapter one in the book of Philippians. So it makes sense if we start by understanding what the gospel is. And so by, by way of introduction, I wanted to say what the gospel is, but I must admit I found it difficult to actually write something that says what the gospel is. I feel like I know what it is, uh, but actually putting it into words, it seemed like a thing that I could illuminate from many different numbers of directions and and, 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 and you would see a different aspect of it, even though the gospel itself is quite simple. So in the Greek, the word for gospel is euangelon. I'm, I'm pronouncing that incorrectly, I know. And it's, uh, the, the prefix eu, e-u, means a good thing, angelion. Uh, comes from angel, which is a messenger, and so it's the good message or the good proclamation. That's literally what the word means in the Greek. Our English word gospel comes from the same basic uh, combination of ideas, the good proclamation, the good news. What the gospel is, then, is a good message. And what is that message, Well, we've actually said it multiple times today, and and the best way to give that message is is the summary of it that Paul provides us in Philippians, that Jesus Christ, being in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something uh, to be used to his own advantage, but he made himself nothing. He came in the form of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross... Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledged that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The message of the gospel, there's so many summaries of it in the Bible, you find in Acts, the first sermon that Peter preaches is a very simple summary of the gospel. And always, the gospel seems to be basically a biography of Jesus Christ. In the book of Matthew, the gospel is called the gospel of the kingdom. Elsewhere, it's called the gospel of God, the gospel of the glory of God, the gospel of peace or reconciliation. But most often, it's called the gospel of Christ. And in fact, sometimes... In this particular text we're looking at, it doesn't say preach the Gospel, it just says preach Christ, Christ Himself. Why is it that the biography of Christ is good news for us? Well, the reason is because if you are saved, if you are putting your faith in Christ, you are found in Him, you are given the same story, in His death you die and in His life you will live again on the other side of the grave. The gospel is the means by which God reconciles us to himself. Jesus Christ is the lens through which God looks at us, so he sees his perfect son and we are remade in his son's image and Jesus Christ is the lens through which we see God. God otherwise would be invisible to us, we could not bear to look at his glory but in Christ Jesus we find the appearance of God, we find access to God through him. Jesus Christ is, in every sense, the substance of the message of the gospel. And if we look further on in Philippians, in Philippians uh, 3.20, Paul gives us perhaps a little bit more insight into that. He says, our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, Who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so they will be like his glorious body. So the message of the gospel is Jesus Christ and if you want to understand the gospel you need to put your faith in Jesus Christ and learn about him and learn how to share him himself with others. So the gospel message is Jesus Christ himself The gospel proclamation was what the church was given and entrusted with when Jesus left this earth and ascended on high. He left, he ascended into the heavens, he was enthroned, he sits at the right hand of God, he was given the Holy Spirit and then he poured out the Holy Spirit on his church at the right time so that they were equipped with the gospel, so that they were given this proclamation they could take to all of the world to share with everyone. Now, I want you to imagine that you're fighting in a war. You're a soldier on the front line somewhere in some location and you hear news that one of the most impressive generals, famous fighters that's inspiring everyone for your war has been taken captive. He's been put in chains in the heart of the enemy stronghold that's the context that we enter into with Philippians here. The Apostle Paul, the most impressive of the Apostles in many ways, the most active, gone on so many missionary journeys, started so many churches, so many people can say he's their, he's their father in the Gospel, he's the one they first heard the good news through, a fiery preacher, full of the Holy Spirit, has been taken captive. He was arrested, he's been taken to Rome, he's chained to a palace guard in the palace, he is going to go on trial before Caesar and quite possibly be put to death. So that's the context that we come to uh, our passage today and so we're just going to work through it um, essentially just verse by verse and then at the end I have a few items of uh, application. So, the first thing that Paul says to them is now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, this is in verse 12, what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And Paul is telling them here that things are not what they look like. He might have been taken captive and taken into the heart of the enemy's stronghold but though he may be in chains, the gospel is not in chains, though he may be in chains, Christ is still in control of everything that is happening. Not only is his ministry not vulnerable to the things that the enemies of Christ might be doing at that time, taking him captive and chaining him up, not only is it invulnerable but actually it's exactly where God wants him to be. This is exactly where he's meant to be and if you read in Acts about how he came to be here, the Philippians probably didn't have the book of Acts at this stage so so they wouldn't have have known all of this but he had a vision on his way there when there was a shipwreck, he was on his way to Rome and he had a vision from an angel and the first thing the angel said to him is not don't worry you're going to survive the shipwreck, the angel said don't worry you are going to stand on trial in front of Caesar Now, most people would go, don't worry, I'm going to go on trial in front of the emperor of, like, the whole known world. No, that was exactly where he's meant to be. You listen to Christ's sermon on the Mount of Olives to his disciples and he said to them, you are going to be brought before kings and rulers and princes and in that moment, don't worry, I will give you the words to say. That's my plan, that's how I'm going to advance the Gospel. Paul is exactly where he has been heading, And so Paul is exactly where he is meant to be. And this is also something that we see throughout the scriptures. God often works in unexpected and mysterious ways so that things don't look like they are as good as they are. Uh, What came to my mind was Samson. I also thought of Joseph and David. But Samson has a similar story. Samson, through some foolish decisions that he made, he lost his strength and he was taken captive by the Philistines. And so you can imagine if you were an Israelite at that time, the Philistines have been oppressing your nation. This warrior stands forward, and he's indestructible, and and he's such an inspiration, and he's protecting you, and he keeps fighting against the Philistines, and then he gets taken captive, and his eyes get taken out, and he's chained up in the heart of their temple, and you haven't seen him for weeks. You're going, well, things are out of control. Things are not going well. But it was exactly what God had planned, because the Philistines, in their arrogance, put Samson on display when there were a thousand or something like that, I can't remember the exact number, there were a lot of them in one place, and at that moment, God used Samson to just push over a couple of columns of the temple, the whole thing crashed down and took out all of them in one go. God had a magnificent victory planned, and even though Samson did the wrong thing, even though the Philistines you know, looked like they were succeeding, people might have lost hope, God's plan was not thwarted. God works in these ways and his plan is invulnerable. And so in this particular situation where Paul is, we can put a a little bit more uh, flesh on the bones, if you like, a little bit more detail. Paul has been chained to a palace guard and so everywhere he goes he's got a guard chained to him. from Paul's perspective, he hasn't been chained to the guard. The guard has been chained to him. This poor guy has to, has to stand there the whole time while Paul's singing and praying and writing really complicated letters. And, uh, and and all of the palace guard, they keep hearing about this amazing guy, Paul, did you know? Like, he survived a shipwreck. In fact, everyone did. And then he survived a snake bite. Like, nothing can stop this guy. And he's happy. Why on earth is he happy? He's probably going to die next week. It, it doesn't make sense to them. The whole palace guard understand it's irrefutable to them that his chains are in Christ for the, for the cause of Christ. They can tell because his witness is so strong and, and if we look further then, uh, further down into verse 14, he says because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. All of the Christians who are in Rome for them Paul one of one of God's great apostles has come into their city and they can see that even though he's chained up there's there's suddenly all these new Christians among Caesar's household there's all of these palace guard everyone's talking about Paul and they're like Paul's doing his bit inside the palace we need to do our bit outside the palace so they're doing preaching and they're telling everyone the good news and they're making sure that the church of God together side by side is proclaiming the gospel of Christ the euangelion, they are giving that message of Christ because a work is being done in their midst. And this is what Paul wants the Philippians to understand. He started, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, this is working for the advance of the gospel. There's a work happening in Rome. Things aren't out of control here. Exactly what is meant to be happening is happening. Christ is here with his spirit in the church and the gospel is being proclaimed. We then come to something rather intriguing to read in this passage. All of these various Christians, uh, the brothers and sisters in Rome who have been emboldened by Paul's chains, actually fall into two different categories. Now, some of them are preaching out of goodwill and they understand what's going on. They do it out of love, knowing that Paul has been put there Literally, he has been placed, he's been positioned for the defence of the Gospel. They know that there's a work going on, that God is behind, that things are going to plan and they want to be part of that. They're united with Paul in his message, in his mission, they want to see the Gospel advance. But there's this strange second category of people. It says, some preach Christ out of anvilry and rivalry... They preach out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. Who on earth are these strange people that preach the gospel out of selfish ambition? Now there's a couple of scenarios we could uh, conceive of that might explain this. The first is that they're not actually sincere at all, they're not Christians and so perhaps they think that the more the the, the tumult and the rise and the spread of the gospel in the city happens then perhaps in the castle uh, the the government will feel more threatened by the Christians and so they'll come down a bit harder on Paul in his trial and so maybe as a kind of strategic move if the gospel advances even more it'll be more threatening and then it'll be stamped down all the more quickly. Maybe that's what they're thinking. I, I actually think that that's not the most likely scenario because the people doing that would be putting themselves at risk by being some of the people preaching. It's, it doesn't seem that these are preaching a false gospel, they're not lying about Christ, they are preaching Christ but what they have is they've got mixed motives, they have selfish ambition mixed in, they have envy mixed in, so they are strange and, and maybe you find that strange but maybe that's just because God cooked you up using a different recipe book than he used when he made me because to, to, to me this makes complete sense. Uh, I, I totally understand being motivated by selfish ambition when it comes to spreading the gospel and speaking to others. It's, it's actually I think extremely easy. All you want is just to have a little bit of the glory for yourself. You just want to do a kind of good job. You want someone afterwards to say, well done, you're really good at this, uh, you, you, you said exactly the right thing, you worded that really well. You just want a little bit for yourself and then when you see Paul and while his mission was extremely successful, he also, you know, he can't see very well and sometimes he's, he's got different types of weaknesses and whatnot and he doesn't seem to be very political about what he does I mean he, he goes and says things about the Jews and the Christians in a letter that he sends to Rome and it probably stirred up a whole bunch of trouble and then he comes on the scene they're like this guy he's the guy that wrote that letter that that caused all of those problems between the Jews and the Christians and the Jews have got kicked out of Rome somewhere around this time in history by the way so there's probably a whole lot of different factors and then there's just the fact that Paul got himself arrested it's very easy for us to take the basic interpretation of events and say, well, if he got himself arrested, he can't have been doing the right thing. God's punishing him for his selfishness. So maybe they were preaching and saying, Paul, don't do what he did, got himself arrested. You need to you need to be more loving or you need to be more gracious or you need to spread the gospel this way, not that way. And you've got to have the right formula, the right method. Any little bit that says that we've got some of that strength, we deserve some of that glory. All of it contained our motivations in spreading the gospel. Now, we need to realize that what these people are doing is not okay. Paul doesn't say it's perfectly fine that they're doing that. He's going to say a little bit further down in the letter, uh, in Philippians 1.27, he says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves uh, in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. A bit further down... Um, then I'll know you are striving together in one spirit, as one for the faith. he speaks about them standing side by side and being of one mind. In chapter 2, verse 3, he addresses this very thing. Very specifically, he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of others. So it's not okay that these people have selfish ambition and envy and strife. But, at this point in the letter, the main thing he wants to tell them is, it's not going to get in the way of the advance of the gospel. Even that can't thwart Christ's plan to spread the gospel in Rome, whether they're motivated out of pure motives or whether they're motivated out of mixed motives, either way, Christ is preached, and in this, Paul rejoices. And that brings us to the last verse that we have, verse 18, Christ is preached and in that I rejoice. So we have seen that the gospel is indefeatable in the face of the enemies of Christ and it's also undefeatable in the face of the friends of Christ who have wrong motives, mixed motives, it still won't get in the way of the advance of the gospel. As a result, Paul, because he has a right frame of mind towards the gospel, because it is his highest aspiration and highest ambition, he has an unassailable joy. You're going to notice over the following weeks that this sermon series is going to get a bit repetitive. Um, That's because Paul himself gets repetitive. Um, In fact, he makes the point that he's repetitive, like twice. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 1, he says, "'Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord.'" He realises he's getting repetitive, so he says, "'It's no trouble for me to say the same thing again.'" (laughs) "'Don't don't do me any harm to repeat myself.'" Chapter 4, verse 4, "'Rejoice in the Lord always.'" I'll say it again, rejoice. It's hard to know what tone of voice to read that in. I, I, I picture Paul dictating this to, to his, his scribe, and he's, he's carried away in the Holy Spirit. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. And you think, again I'll say rejoice? It keeps coming up again and again. And, and the particular point that we see in this passage in chapter 1, is one of his reasons for joy. He's going to give us multiple. He's going to show how joy is unassailable and it flows from uh, the reality of the gospel in our lives. But here he has joy because the gospel is being proclaimed. In particular, Christ is being proclaimed. It is going out and it doesn't matter that there's strife and envy among the church. It does matter, but it's not going to get in the way of his joy because he knows that Christ is winning. He's succeeding, he's doing what he planned and nothing can get in the way of the success of his mission through his church. Well, we've read through the passage so then I need to bring out some points of application for us. One thing that I like about a lot of the book of Philippians is that we see here demonstrated things that elsewhere are taught uh, explicitly. So we have a lot of passages in the Bible about faith and Paul can explain faith, what it is. Here we just see it demonstrated, we just see faith on display, that Paul's confident in God and what that means, that even when he's chained to, a, to one of the palace guards in the palace and about to go on trial and possibly die, he's happy. He has an unassailable joy that just keeps bubbling out of him. That's faith on display and it has to make us ask, like, what do we see when we look around at the church? And what do we see when we look around at the world? I tried to think of, of different specific analogies and situations that have come up, and I feel like, unfortunately, it's very easy to see the envy and strife and selfish ambition and disunity. I thought back to a few years back when Israel Folau shared a verse of Scripture on his, um, was it Instagram or whatever, one of those social media sites and, and there was such a furore and, and Israel Folau really had taken uh, his stance that uh, he, he would rather no longer play sport than be muzzled and not say what he believed. It was... A stance that came at that time at quite a cost to him and also a lot of public exposure and it must have been really quite stressful and I remember some people talking about it and the first thing that I'd say is you don't want to be associated too closely with Israel Folau like his church actually they've got, they believe some weird stuff you know they've got some of their theology wrong and even in the midst of, of something like that admittedly it's not straightforward but our attitude needs to be well the gospel is in Christ's hands. His Spirit will work through His Church, whether the friends of Christ or the enemies of Christ, whether with pure motives or mixed. We need to be able to rejoice when the Gospel is spread and we need, we need to be able to see that and trust it, trust the work of the Church in the hands of its Captain. There's so many different things that are, that are happening in our society, in in the social sphere, in the political sphere. Um, And we've got to really have our minds in the right mindset if we want to understand how to react to those things in a right way. So so here's the the points of application. The first one is things are not always as they appear. Don't look back 2,000 years and see Paul imprisoned and and see that that was part of God's plan and then look around at the world today and think that everything's out of control. God's plan is still being prosecuted in the world. And Jesus is not going to lose one single person of the souls that God has given to him. And he is able to save people in any type of circumstance. So do not worry that the big picture is being lost for the weakness of the church or the weakness of us. Secondly, for yourself, have the gospel as your first aspiration and ambition. It's not that we should have all of the the right theology or the right attitudes towards society and the right understanding of politics and all those things. The gospel has to be central. I listened to a a talk by um, Don Carson, about Philippians when I was preparing for this and he spoke about a a friend of his I think he was a a Mennonite and I don't actually know exactly what they are but um, this guy had said that the movement that he had been part of seemed to have gone through three phases through three generations in the first generation they knew the gospel and they explored and and tried to understand secondary issues the peripheral things in the second generation they assumed the gospel and they focused on peripheral things and in the third generation they forgot the gospel and all they had were the peripheral things. We don't want that to happen to our church which means we need to keep the gospel at the centre because if you read the scriptures the gospel is at the centre. The gospel is the highest aspiration of God's church and the gospel is Christ and if, if, if the gospel is not presented as Christ himself, if he is not the vehicle of the gospel, then we're not quite getting it right. So have the gospel as your first aspiration and ambition. Thirdly, take a lesson from the Christians, the brothers and sisters in Rome, be emboldened to proclaim it without fear. The gospel is not vulnerable to the enemies of Christ. It is not vulnerable to the friends of Christ. It's not vulnerable to you. You have the same promise that was given to the apostles when Christ said to them, you will stand before kings and you'll be put on trial and in that moment don't worry about what you will say because the Holy Spirit will give you the words to speak. And when God wishes to pluck a soul out of hell and into light, He will give you the words that that person needs. And if you have the Gospel as your highest aspiration, if you are part... Of God's mission, He will put you in the situations and He will give you what you need. So be emboldened to proclaim the gospel without fear and learn from the other things that Paul has said in his other letters. He speaks about how he runs and he doesn't run, he, he, he whips his body into submission so that he would become more fit, but he doesn't do it because, because of longevity or for fitness. He doesn't do it for a fun run. He does it for a run that he wants to win. And the, the analogy he's using there is not that his life is a race and he wants to get to the finish line sooner. Uh, he, the point is that there's something at stake. There's something that matters and he's part of that and he wants to do it as well as he can. He's not afraid of losing, but he tries to win. He says he's like a fighter, he's like a soldier. He doesn't, he doesn't fight like someone who's just doing katas in his own private dojo, you know, just punching the air. He fights like he's actually got enemies to punch because he understands he's part of a real army. Now, sure, he doesn't fight against flesh and blood, he fights against principalities and powers and the rules of the darkness of this age but he still fights for real, he's really part of the battle and don't, don't live a, a Christian life where you are standing on the sidelines, clapping as your team wins. Our job is to be on the field, wielding the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And if we trust God's Spirit, He will help us to fight, He will give us victories and He'll have some good times and it will have some hard times but it will be real and then you will know that unassailable joy that Paul has in every situation. Take this lesson from Samson. I mentioned Samson before. Samson was taken captive when he lost God's spirit and he regained his strength when he regained God's spirit. Zechariah had this message for Zerubbabel who was the the governor of um, Jerusalem. He said, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. We put in so much effort, and we will put it in, to, to, to learn the creeds and to get our understanding right, to have a right knowledge, uh, to, to, to know God's scriptures. But ultimately, the victory will never come through our abilities Paul himself was given weakness so that Christ's strength would be perfected in him. As a lesson for us, that God's strength is what brings the victory. And for as long as God's church tries to prosecute its mission without God's Spirit, it will not succeed. But with His Spirit, it will succeed. It will turn on a dime and it won't matter that we've lined everything up exactly with our theology, it won't matter that really what circumstances exactly we're in it won't matter whether we're imprisoned in the heart of the enemy stronghold or whether we're free on the streets either way if God's spirit is at work his church will succeed so when you pray for the church pray for her simply that her king would be near fifthly rejoice In a few weeks' time, we're going to have, of course, a sermon on chapter 4, I would presume. But when he says there, rejoice in the Lord always, again I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious for anything. The Lord is near. And that's what having the Spirit means. Christ is right there. It is the Spirit of Christ that we are given. God has given the message to his church, the euangelion the good news to proclaim. He's given it the mission to proclaim it, but they had to wait until Pentecost when the spirit was poured out on the church and then they could have victory and victory like nothing that had been seen before. I don't know what is coming in Australia's future. When I look at it with my own eyes, things look pretty grim actually. I see a lot of things that are pretty dark and it feels like Australia is under just a spiritual blanket, it's ru- wrapped up with spiritual blinkers, it's just a dullness and our country is wealthy, all of us are wealthy, not just some of us really, like the, the, the level of wealth and, and Christ Himself said it's difficult for a rich man to enter the Kingdom of Heaven, there's so many distractions And it seems like if if we were described in the parable of the sower, the devil just snatches up the seed before it can really land. But that's looking at it with my own eyes. Because Christ is working through his church, will work through his church, that is his determination, that's why he has his church there and the very mission of the church is to build his church and to make it bigger, to make it into a glorious complete city and he will not stop until every single brick of his church has been crafted and placed and he has a mighty temple, that city that will live for all eternity. So Christ will succeed at his mission and we should seek to pray for his spirit, to learn the gospel, to be emboldened so that we are part of that church doing our part and knowing the joy of the undefeatable nature of that mission. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you that you do give your spirit to your church. We pray that you would pour out your spirit on your church in Australia, on us here. Give us a deep understanding of the gospel. In that moment where we are standing before someone who needs to hear the gospel, give us the words to say. Give us a right attitude towards all of your other children to have no envy, no strife, no selfish ambition, but untainted motives Give us the same humility and the mindset that Christ had so that we could also then have that joy. And I pray that you'll have everyone here know that unassailable joy that comes only from you. We pray these things in the name of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen.